Hi, y'all, and welcome to the History of Networking at the Network Collective, where we talk about historical, oh, did I say hysterical? No, historical networking. Tonight, we're talking about the original use cases and engineering work for segment routing, and our guest is going to be the very famous Jeff Tensura. I see Jordan is here first, though. Let's talk to Jordan. How are you tonight, Jordan? Uh, I'm doing doing well. That was very slow, Jordan. That was very slow. I'm not convinced. (laughs) <laughs> okay so you want the real answer i just got out of a really cruddy meeting so that's it no i'm not really doing all that well tonight but here i am because we're going to do this anyway we're going to push through now no all is good i can't complain too much uh, oh i'm sure you can complain but that's okay he won't complain is that the right <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, i won't that's a better way to put it yep and donald is surrounded by a christmas tree like a halo which we that- all know is not true I don't know about a halo, but definitely in the Christmas spirit, finally. I think I'm, I think I'm going to hold on to this episode for like six months now, just so Donald looks a little awkward <laughs> when we release this in June. I think it's a you, actually. But then everybody will just think Donald does Christmas in June. No, which is, right. which I get, is okay. I get there's, there's worse things, right? Yeah, that's, that's true. All right, so Jeff, this is your first time on History of Networking, right? Second well, time, it's his, he was Jeff did an off the cuff with us, right? At uh, oh, right. S- SDX, he actually did two off the cuffs. We've only released one of them so far, <laughs> so uh, so this is his second, maybe third, depending on your perspective episode with Network Collective specifically, but the first history, history of, networking. of networking. That's yeah, correct. that's correct. That's right. So Jeff, tell us about yourself. Where what what's your history in the networking world? Huh. So I still have the email where you are in Syskatak and I'm on Sarah other <laughs> side asking you why 7,500 peaks every 30 minutes. So in other words, you've been a pain in the butt to Russ for a very long time. Well, That's right. I believe it's 2003. So. <laughs> so, so, so the real question is, was the case ever closed? Not with you. Yeah, oh, so I didn't he think had to so. escalate. It <laughs> 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 ah, doesn't surprise me. Oh, yes. So, so uh, let's see. Let's talk about segment routing a little bit. Segment routing started as a way to simplify MPLS traffic engineering. I mean, we all know how difficult MPLS traffic engineering is. Usually when you say MPLS TE in a room full of enterprise engineers, they all go running, screaming out of the room, covering their ears and screaming, la, 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 because they don't want to hear about it. So that's fighting that impulse right now. Like I just, <laughs> there's a door right over there. That's where I want to go. Yeah, that's completely it. So, so Jeff, tell us a little bit about the history and use cases of segment routing and where it came from, and uh, maybe where you think it's going. So simplification came from two sides. On one side, we had RCPT, which is soft state protocol with a lot of state, a lot of dependencies, very complicated to operate. Nightmares of troubleshoot. So resource reservation protocol, which wasn't originally designed for MPLS usage at all, right? It was designed for QoS. It was designed for um, allocating queues inside a QoS uh, schema within a network, right? And then it was bent around and made to work in MPLS, which we all know how adding things to protocols like that makes it much more complicated. So yeah, so we had RSVP and go ahead, Jeff. Sorry, just 
Correct. So encoding was extremely complicated protocol. And in my previous life, I've been testing RCPT year over year over year with different vendors. We always had issues. So complicated protocol to operate. On another side, label distribution that happened either with RCPT or LDP was complicated as well. So RCPT, as we said, and complicated protocol plus label distribution. LDP on another side was kind of plug and play or more plug and pray uh, dependencies on IGP, synchronization with IGP, a lot of issues, pretty hacky protocol in general. So there was willingness and need to simplify on both sides. On one side to remove state from the network, on another side reduce number of protocols needed to distribute labels. So there was an early on attempt in PSAP, right, which is still used by a lot of people to reduce some of this complexity and to offline some of the calculation anyway, right? So does that play into this? Was it too complex still? Or, I mean, my impression is we're still using PSAP even with SR in many places, or there are drafts out there for that. So PSAP is a protocol between PC and PCC on itself, has nothing to do with segment segment, Yeah, with segment routing particularly, yeah. So it's really a protocol to convey, or actually it's bidirectional, to signal things from PC to PCC and from PCC to PC. So the data signal could be anything. Initially used in GMPLS use cases, uh, MPLST use cases, extended to segment routing, which was quite important. So back to your question, the complexity was really in RCPT itself in the way it was designed, as well as really lack of ability to build full networking graph and apply business logic to it rather than trying to do it locally with all the difference in repairs, global revertedness, local revertedness, how the things work together. I mean, looking back six, seven years, it was really complicated. And unless you had a lot of experience with it, it was kind of black magic. Right, right. Which is why it was only deployed a lot in large-scale service provider networks where they could hire the right group of people. And even in, an, even, in a, um, even a service provider network, we often ran into not having many people who could actually work on the network, uh, an MPLS-TE-based network. It was relegated to a very small team just because of the complexity involved. Right. So how did that lead to segment routing? I mean, what was the basic idea that was going on with segment routing to make that happen? So basic idea was that your ingress point decides the path throughout the network. So there was an early attempt to do so around 2004 by Albert Tian and George Apostolopoulos worked for Redback Network Company. I had the pleasure to work for, uh, published a draft in 2003 presenting MPLS was extremely badly received by Jakob Rector and Eric Rosen and pretty much killed there. It was the first attempt to describe how segment, how source routed LSP could work. It was based on LDP distribution of labels. It was based on domain wide labels and special label block identified in segment routing. As, as okay, so, ex- so explain, explain the concept for listeners who may not be aware of it. So the behavior 
the path throughout the network is encoded as a label stack, where every label identifies either forwarding or any other kind of instruction. But, but you mean in terms of being universal, in terms of every router has a single label and it's universally used. So in other words, you don't have replicated labels anywhere in the network between routers or between switching devices. That's kind of the concept you're getting at, right? So in MPLS CE or standard MPLS, you don't have that. You can reuse labels. Absolutely. So only nodal label, not, not all seed has to be unique. Right, the okay. Other seeds that identify interfaces, bundle services are usually locally significant. So okay. they're never exposed, they're never the top labels. If you want to reach particular local label, you always have to reach global one first. Okay, so that was the original idea and that came out of, you said out of a paper from where you mentioned it before. Is that something people can still get online that Absolutely. read that paper? It's called Draftian MPLS LSP source route published in 2004. Okay, so it's actually a draft, so you can look it up. Absolutely. And um, we might want to stick that in the show notes, Jordan, so people yep. can look at it. Um, yep. It's expired draft, right, Jeff? So it's no longer... About 14 years ago, yes. Yeah, so it's a long time ago. <laughs> so it's still in the archives, but, you know, there it is. So it's still, I mean, it's a prior art to what MPLS segment routing is. It's yeah. different terminology, okay. but it describes the technology. Okay, so now from there, that's 14 years ago, right? That's what you said, so 14 years ago, that's a long time ago. So why did it take so long for people to come back to this idea because the complexity didn't seem like it was there at that time? Or what, what took the distance you know, to make that happen? Uh, SDN came around. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but what is SDN? Oh, no, 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 no. We're not, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> That's been killed to death about 20 times over. We're not defining SDN. All right, moving on. So uh, about around 2012, Cisco started to promote segment routing. So in a lot of cases, thanks to Clarence Fields Fields, who took the organization, talking to people, building the ecosystem around. Uh, Stefano Privati from Cisco, who did a lot of work helping encoding take form, helping staff to progress in ATF. Thanks to Hannes Gredler, who at this time worked at Juniper and early realized the potential of segment routing, while the rest of Juniper not so. So the and, basic, oh, go ahead, sorry. And few people from operator world, so mostly orange guys. So Stefan, uh, you'll have to cut this out. And, let me find their names and pronunciation. <laughs> uh, Bruno Dekren and Stefan Litkowski. Okay. So they were early adopters and they helped a lot in developing use cases. Okay. So what's the basic use case that came out for segment routing? I mean, traffic engineering, of course, but in what way was traffic engineering important or what was the problem being tried to be solved in traffic engineering? I'm assuming it was for large-scale service providers. It wasn't for data centers at first, right? That was the primary thing. So back in 2012, data center wasn't such a hot thing as it is today. Uh, if you remember... There were two traffic engineering protocols, RCPT and LDP-CR. Right. 
So LDPCR was killed by ETF as competing solution. So we ended up with RCPT. Uh, so on one side, there was a push to simplify. On another side, there was a push to reduce number of protocols and use one protocol to do both reachability distribution as well as label distribution. So this came kind of from both sides for people who wanted to just replace LDP in their network, for okay. people who needed traffic engineering at scale. For so, but you said SDN played a role in this. How did SDN play a role in the segment routing, people wanting to do segment routing? Um, I mean, because to my mind, SDN is primarily about centralized controllers, moving um, policy and moving forwarding stuff off of the remote devices or off of the routers and pushing it into a controller. How does that play into segment routing? I'm a little bit curious about how those two things work together or not work together, but why that would play into the history of segment routing, why history or why segment routing would have been popular because of it. So as been proven, fully centralized solution don't scale. The kind of segment routing, I would say segment routing was the main use case in transport SDN. We would keep distribution still distributed. So scale would be there while policies applied to full networking graph would go to the controller. And if you look at protocol development, it wasn't only ISS and SPF, it was full ecosystem of protocols needed. So label distribution in uh, OSPF, ISS, later in BGP. BGP link state took care of state distribution to the controller. PSEP with segment routing extensions took care of programming the tunnels to the device to ingress point. Right. So that's where like the PSEP concept comes in, right? Where you centralize kind of building these label stacks and pushing them to the top of or to the router that then describes a path through the network Correct. based on policy. Right. <clears throat> so if you look at how Open Daylight, which is the first open source Asian control was built, was exactly the case. So you would have your ICS BGP OSPF distribute labels, do what needs to be done in terms of distribution. You would use BGP less to expose the topology and labels assigned by segment routing. You will build full graph. You would have PC to run the computation to compute a path, which would be passed down to PSAP block, which would communicate to PCC, so a router, and provision the block. Now, was, just that, was that just not possible in MPLSTE? So, I mean, like you mentioned some motivations kind of being simplification, reduction of protocols, and that all makes sense. Um, but it, like my assumption here is that that just wasn't feasible to add on to MPLSTE in its, in its traditional format. There were a few solutions which were very expensive, <clears throat> very complicated. Gotcha. So you could still use PSEP to provision a path. PSEP was... Mm -hmm there long before. You could use IGPs on the controller itself to learn the topology, which was complicated in a way because traffic engineering extensions are bound to an area. So you had to have session and jury tunnels to every other area, which was complicated in itself. And scale on itself, every new LSP you would program would create state across the network. So at ingress, every transit point and egress and 
you know, limits were around a few thousand OSPs on gotcha. any device. Okay. So it's interesting because you said one of the primary things that <clears throat> was a motivator or a big difference in uh, the way in coming out with PISA or with uh, segment routing is the idea of having a single label or a fixed label block on each device, right? Every device has its a label that doesn't change or rather isn't replicated or duplicated anywhere in the network. Because normally in MPLS, when I forward a packet with an MPLS label, I'm actually just, it's a point to point thing, right? I'm using a label to get to my downstream router, my upstream router as the case might be. And then, <clears throat> From there, it swaps the label to get to its upstream router to follow the path. So you could actually use label 100 on every router in the network, and that could describe a, a path because you just know that you're swapping 100 for 100 and forward out a particular interface. So that's kind of interesting. That's one thing. But there was another thing in there, which is this idea of stacking labels. Now, in traditional MPLS, we only stack labels because we would put a, an outer label to describe the end-to-end -end path and an inner label to, or an outer label to describe the point-to-point -point path and an inner label to describe the end-to-end -end path. Now, how is that different with segment routing? And when did that concept come out? Was that something that was invented later on or did that come from the original papers that were written in this area or the original drafts that were written in this area? So the original draft, Tian, describes use of label stack where every label in the stack identifies a knot or a link on a knot. Okay. <clears throat> However, as you rightly say, so in pre-SR deployments, you would usually see top label that used to provide transfer, so to reach remote P and inner label that describes the service or identifies the service on receiving P. With segment routing, we could use the same. So assuming there's no traffic engineering, top label would be that of remote P and it would use shortest path to the remote PE to reach it. So still double label stack. And, that, and that's using the globally available label of the actual node, right? The, the, the endpoint node, whatever, if your remote PE has that unique label associated with it, that would be the outer label. And then you just use the routing, the shortest path. To yeah, determine, so yeah. Okay. It, could be, it could be theoretically also interface label as long as you reach this remote PE. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. Yep. So, but that's where that's where the policy comes in, right? Is the ability to stick a stack of stack of labels in, and then you choose the shortest path to the next label in the stack. Yeah. So it's out the MPLS is very efficient in coding. So using twenty bit label, you could provide context, and then use control plane to explain device what to do with it. And this health separation between what's in data plane versus what's in control plane gives the ability to scale and provide a lot of services without affecting scalability and flexibility of the network. So from there, I mean, if you take those basic concepts, where were the first drafts written in this area? Or you take the SDN concept, concept, concept of centralizing policy, you take the concept of stacking labels and the concept of unique labels. Those three things are kind of the root of what you would consider segment routing, right? I mean, those three things had to merge to make segment routing happen. So like what year and what drafts, what were the original, like what, how did this happen from an IETF perspective of having these things come together in a way that made sense in segment routing? So on timescale, Draftian was published 2004. 
uh, number of RFCs describing MPLS architecture where uh, pop, push, swap comes in and ability to build an MPLS stack. Uh, it's in 3000 range, I believe, so quite some time ago. What came in 2012 is really extensions to IGPs and later on 2 said BGP and some other protocols to program specifically segment routing as you know it today. So it's reasonably long journey, not to forget hardware capabilities, ability to push labels. So classically, if you look at any high-end router built prior to 2015, it was four to five labels. So you didn't need really more. Uh, classical VPN scenario, two labels. You do interest option C, there's flavor with three labels. You might put RSVPT would be four labels. You might use FRR in RSVPT scenario, five labels. So only very high-end routers did five labels. Low-end silicon was usually limited to two labels. So most of devices were impossible of doing segment routing. Right. So, so, so what you're saying is hardware actually, hardware limitations have actually limited the deployment of segment routing in a lot of networks just because of the being able to push a label stack onto the packet at the edge router, at the head end router when the packet comes in. So you might see the packet come in, it would get classified in some way, and then based on that classification, it would get shoved into a, a label stack. But doing that label stack has been problematic. So like on low-end equipment, you might say, or something like that, right? But on high-end equipment, you could. Yeah. So there are a number of drafts uh, I've published over the last three years called MSD, Maximum Seed Depth in SAS, OSPF, and BGP. They describe the problem. They provide the signaling and also talk about workarounds. But in general, yes, so there was on one side hardware that couldn't do it. On another side, there was a need to do so. The development of, routing protocol and use cases pushed silicon vendors to to do it to do it so what are some of those use cases for more than like a four stack or something like that that you could come up with that would push a silicon vendor to do it so anytime you deviate from shortest path you need to push a label so in networks that have to be highly traffic engineered and have longer paths uh, you might use more than three four five or seven labels uh, okay. I'll, so, I'll later share the link to my presentation at uh, MPLS World Congress two years ago. It talks about MSD and how the things work together. Yeah. So let's talk about this like in a data center fabric, right? So let's say you have a five-stage um, five spine and leave. Now, I can see four, I can see four stack, right? But explain a little bit about why you might want to go beyond four stack. Let's say that you want to do interface labels. Why would you want to do an interface label in a label stack instead of just doing like, um, what are the two types of labels that might be useful and where they come from? And then maybe describe a little bit how, how they're used and why you might end up with a stack more than four high based on, you know, something like that, having interface labels. Sure. So there's wide variety of seats Two most important are nodal seeds, the global unique label that identifies the node itself. Think router ID. So that's like the red, that's like the red label, right? Or yes. what's it called? I guess it's the red, yeah. And adjacency seed, 
that identifies unidirectional adjacent neural net could be either local or global. Right. And so that's the SID, right? That's what people call the SID pretty much. Oh. Is that correct? Or? Yeah. So it's yeah. a segment identifier. Yeah, segment any, identifier. Any, any kind of segment routing label called SID. Okay. So now, so describe why those two different types of labels exist in segment routing. I mean, what was the thinking behind putting two different kinds of labels there? So if you use only nodal seats, you're pretty much mimicking LDP. You use shortest passes computed by your IGP and you follow it. If you want to deviate from shortest pass, you might need to send traffic out of interface, which is not on shortest path. And this is where you use adjacency seats. So you send it out of interface that is not your shortest path to the destination. You overwrite the IGP computation by something that administrative decision. So, so you would come into a, tra- into a router and rather than forwarding based on, I want to go to this next router next, you would actually say, I want to go out this particular interface next. And you could compute that in a centralized controller, put that in the label stack. And now those adjacency SIDs do not need to be unique, right? They're still local within. It's only the router SID that needs to be, uh, the nodal SID that actually needs to be unique in the entire network, right? So there's a subtle difference. Uh, there's a flag. You know, we always have knobs to enable. Yeah, sure. There's a flag to make it globally unique. It has positive and negative effects. The negative effect is that you cannot expose locally assigned label on device that's not the device that assigned it. So you end up with double label stack, one that's nodal seed, which is popped, and then you look up your local seed. Okay. So if you make adjacency seeds global, you need only one label since it's global, it's unique on the device that is uh, the anchor not for it. Okay, so it's interesting because I know one use case I've run into where the adjacency set is really useful is if you have multiple links between two routers and you want to choose a specific link rather than just going to a specific next hop or a a specific node, you would actually be able to choose among, say you have um, five or six, 10 gig or 100 gig links between two routers and you want to choose which one specifically you use, which is pretty common. It's actually a lag type solution, right? where you actually have multiple and you want to at the, you have multiple links and you want to be able to choose at the point of origin, which of those links you might use crossing between two, uh, between two routers. Absolutely. So it has to do with representation of either layer two or layer three bundle to the routing system. So normally routing system treats a simple bundle or link group as a single entity and it uses local hashing What's we so had funny? the cat. We, we, had, we had the route to the cat. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And it would use uh, local hashing to choose which link to use. So uh, unpredictable, pretty much. Uh, with segment routing extensions, you could define which link within the bundle you would like to use. So even, so it kind of, it creates more state because now you've got s- signaling per constituent. It gives right. you more granularity to choose which link you would like to use. Right. And more rope to shoot yourself with, too, if you all choose the same link, right? Link yeah, right. It's a rope to hang yourself. <laughs> policy is only ever as good as the implementation, right? Like, That's right. You, you That's can right. always shoot yourself in the foot with policy. We're in the network business. We create rope. 
You can build, <laughs> you can build Here it is. Yeah. Towers. Your yeah. choice. <laughs> so uh, going, not my problem. <laughs> going back to data center question, if you look at today's layer to data center, it's ECMP based forwarding where you don't know which link in the CP bundle is going to be used. So having something like segment routing might give you ability to provision particular paths and know exactly which link is taken to traverse the network. So I think would be one of most interesting use cases for data centers. Yeah. So I mean, like flow pinning, right, is a good is a good use case for a data center, particularly even at the adjacency SID level, because then what you're doing is you're actually pinning a heavy flow onto or pinning all the other flows off of a particular path, not only at the router level, but even at the interface level. And given your silicon can support it, you could do pretty advanced stuff. For example, you could be constantly measuring your queue occupancy depth, and based on this change outgoing interface and signal it. Right. Now, there's a yeah. lot of interesting work in this area. So, so rather than relying on the hash to figure out at every hop which interface to use and relying on the hash to give you good load balancing, if you had a powerful enough controller that could actually calculate it in real time, measure it and calculate it in real time, which would take some serious telemetry, right? But nonetheless, it is possible to do. Uh, you could actually load balance in real time or near real time and make sure everything is going uh, correctly. So I note that in the drafts, there is still a label swap at every hop, even if I'm using, um, even if I'm doing shortest path. So one thing you can do with segment routing is you can say, I'm going to target uh, an, an adjacency or a node said, say five hops away from me and let SPF find the way there, right? But I note that I still label swap at every hop. Why is that? What's the history behind doing the label swap at every hop, even though I'm not actually swapping the label, I'm swapping the label for itself? So swap as an operation on label is defined in MPLS architectural document, I believe 3031. Uh, segment routing architectural job defines logical operation called continue. However, if you look at silicon, it's not really exposed to outside world, either you continue or swap. The result, your incoming label is the same, has the same value as your outgoing label. So, I mean, in terms of performance, and we had the discussion ATF about two years ago, there might be some gain, but at the end, it's completely hidden from you, whether I take one label, replace with another one, or I take one label and pass pointer to egress. Yeah, so it's interesting to me because that's a silicon limitation that the software worked around rather than trying to you know, force the silicon vendor to do something different. So in some ways, segment routing said to the silicon vendor, you need to be able to push more labels. But in other ways, they said, well, we're gonna work within the switching that's available to make this work today. So it's, it's an interesting in engineering trade-off in both cases as to how to solve the problem or how to make it work on both, on both sides. So I'm based on I would say price of your device, you might end up with uh, recirculation. So when packet goes over the same set of pipelines multiple times to push more labels, in more comprehensive system, you might have part of the stack pushed on uh, ingress line card and part of the stack pushed at egress. So there are many solutions, but you're always limited at particular depth. 
Yeah. I do have a, I do have a question as we've talked about <clears throat> hardware limitations. And I noticed we've talked about MPLS. I mean, the whole idea was to move, or I, at least the way I understand it, right, was to move a routing decision into a switching decision, right? I mean, the whole, whole idea is we have these labels. It's just going to be silicon. We're going to pair up and, and put it through. Is is the improvement in hardware is what allows something like segment routing where we can we can choose a nodal label that's five hops away? And now SPF is just fast enough that we're not worried about that where we used to be? Is that is that part of the reason why segment routing is out today where it may not have been an option previously? So well, the, going back... Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. The control plane operations are exactly the same. And if you look at high-end device, it can run 1,000 not SPF below one millisecond, right? So right. we are not limited there. From hardware perspective, the beauty of and success of segment routing MPLS is it does exactly what an MPLS router does. It swaps label. Mm-hmm. So while there are some subtle differences in the way you look up labels, if you need to pop the outer, look up inner, and do some other stuff, practically it's still the same. Oh, so I see what you're saying. So be, because we already know the nodal label, the, the tables are pre-populated about what the shortest path forwarding interface is for that label. And so it just drops it out there, the same MPLS operation. The difference is that we now have global state. Rather, rather than just local labels, the la- we have a, a, a global table of labels that are nodal that we understand and we can pre-populate and say, hey, you just go out this interface if you come in and you're looking yeah. for that node. Yeah, so if you look up LSDB on segment routing enable device, you would see all the labels signaled through IGP and all the bindings. So IP address and corresponding label value. It's all in control plane and not right. related in so we're not really doing an SPF lookup when something comes in that's destined for a node that's a couple of hops away. That lookup was done when we learned about that nodal label to begin with. Absolutely. Right. So it's yeah. a forwarding state. Yep. If you see particular that makes label, a lot of sense. Yep. You know where it goes. Awesome. Yes. It's just like the inner label on an, an MPLS stack. I mean, originally MPLS was designed because there was this issue of whether or not we would be able to support fast forwarding speeds, even with IPv4 and IPv6, particularly IPv6. You know, you start looking at these big addresses and you think, how am I ever in an ASIC or a, 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 you know, a generic network processor be able to look up this long table and I've got to hold this or this long address and I've got to hold this table somehow and I've got to make all this stuff work. So if I can use a little bitty short label, that makes my forwarding a lot, lot faster. So that's where ATM was trying to come in and say this would be much better. And then the counter was, no, we can do this with MPLS and do the same thing, right? But we do it with MPLS to have variable length um, variable length packets, but we still look up on a little bitty header in the very beginning. So then you start looking at what segment routing is doing. It's pretty interesting because you're looking it up, but you're swapping for exactly the same label unless it's the next hop immediately, right? So you can describe a path through the network and you can run shortest path just to get to a particular RID or SID or a router said or adjacency said depending on what you want to do to get you across there so it's an interesting concept it's just this confluence of i think the importance of the centralized or the the global label is that it allows you to have a controller right because without that global view of of labels now you don't have a controller i mean how is the controller going to know 
what every particular hop is assigned downstream, like what you do on standard MPLSTE, right? Because normally I have two routers. The upstream router assigns a label to reach me. The controller has to know all those reach me labels. Well, it simplifies. Right. I mean, I mean, right. I, I still imagine it'd be possible. I mean, you're not talking. You know, yeah, yeah, most net, most yeah, networks. You're not talking. Speed. I mean, we're talking thousands of labels. We're not talking. I mean, I guess it depends on your size. But well, I mean, and in a, in, yeah. in a large scale service provider network, or even in a fa- in a data center fabric, sure, it is that. I mean, it could be millions of labels. Right. Right. Theoretically. But I mean, a controller without 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 tagging, right? The controller is still going to. I mean, if we're just doing straight routing, take out all the MPLS tagging and, and traffic engineering, right? You 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 would need to know the locally significant routes for every single router. I mean, like yeah. it's, it's, I, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So those That's of us who are for silicon, no, there's no free lunch in fast path, right? Anytime you get anything variable, your performance goes down. Dramatically. Yeah. Yes. Dramatically. So again, SRM PLS is so successful because MPLS is simple yet robust technology. So going into kind of, Look at all the discussion around Geneve, uh, VXLAN GP, SRV6, all the variable length things, so TLVs, make forwarding very complicated and potentially very expensive. So. so I know we don't want to spend a lot of time on SRV6, but I was just curious, what's the history? Why was SRV6 apply or brought out? Why were those drafts brought out? What is the use case that's trying to be addressed there? I don't want to get into a discussion about which is better or not, but, you know, just why was that, why were people writing those drafts? What's going on with that? So, uh, first of all, it's possible. So, you could build, based on extension headers, list of V6 addresses that could be used same way we use labels in SRM PLS. there was also assumption that computers or servers are not going to support in PLS. So if you want to program a pass from the application, from the computer itself, uh-huh. IPv6 could be a better solution. So we, are, are we talking about using an IPv6 header rather than a, rather than a tag? Yeah. Right. Or is a substitute? So there's right. also a possibility to use IPv6 with MPLS encapsulation, which is pretty much the same as IPv4, right? Okay. Yeah. So, so, so the re, so the reasoning was though because uh, because you're assuming that a, a server is not going to support MPLS. So you can, but you can push you can push headers. It's gonna it's gonna support the standard IPv6 header. Right. It's gonna so then you then you just header. need software to interpret it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So there's variety of use cases, and obviously there are people who don't particularly like MPLS. <laughs> like Jordan, who is going to run out of the run out of the room screaming? At no, the it's not. It's not MPLS. It's MPLS TE. Yeah, those last two letters. MPLS is fine. It's MPLS TE, and I want to. I want the door. Yeah. No, no, we know what's going on there, Jordan. <laughs> so, an interesting difference between the two, to me, is that and it's from a historical perspective. Again, is that. In in SRV six, you have this this header that has the this the equivalent of a label stack in MPLS, right? But you're not swapping the labels, right? You're actually just keeping that header in place. So yeah, why so, is that? I mean, what's the reason for that historically? Uh, traceability. So what the operation in V six is that you move pointer to the next 
IPv6 address in the header and replace your destination, which is not your end destination. It could be any node in the path that will process the packet, right? So what you're doing de facto, you're moving pointer to the next one, which creates a lot of complication for the plane. So they're very positive, <laughs> but it's traceable. So you know exactly what your path across the network was because it's encoded in the packet. On the negative side, you need to process the stuff. And this is where a lot of problems are coming in. There are a lot of types of low and silicon that just cannot do it. Right. Well, the IPv6 spec says that you can't change the extension header, right? Once, the, once it's put in by the origin, it can't be modified by anybody on the path. So you're referring to discussion in six man yeah. working group. It has to do with faster route which is a very right. different topic we still need to touch upon. So there is a draft in routing working group, which I happen to chair, called TI-LFA. TI stands for topology independent. So let's take a step back. IP faster route came around 2012, I believe, 2013, maybe a bit before in routing, and produced technology called loop-free alternative, LFAs. It uses a simple equation to see whether the backup you might be using is loop-free. And then you could compute whether it's link-protecting LFA or not protecting LFA. LFAs are topology-dependent. So based on your metric setup, you might not have any backups. In order to mitigate shortcomings of LFA, we created extensions called remote LFA. Remote LFA relies on ability to run SPF on behalf of every node and find what we call extended P space, extended PQ space. So PQ node is the node from whose perspective pass to the destination is loop free. In order to do so, you need to build a tunnel from PLR, the protecting node up to the PQ node and you also need to exchange labels in order to create awareness of the services going to go over this LSP. On itself, it, it brought the coverage from around 70% to around 90%, especially in rings, because rings is per definition, very bad topology for LFA. However, it's very complicated topology. You need to establish LDP sessions often on demand, and right. So with segment routing, you don't need to do the LDP sessions, right? You can actually compute it because you know, like you have these global labels you can use. Yeah. So just using SPF. Yeah. Why did yeah. we need remote LFA? Because LDP can only follow the shortest path, right? Right. So with segment routing, we could always use adjacency seats to build any path that's not following the IGP. And by doing so, we can reach PQ not using adjacency seats, and then just nodal seat, so SPF pass to the destination. Also, oh, it kind of removes the need for the tunnel. You just stack the, the adjacency seats to, to get to where you need to go. So when you do take a failure, you replace your initial stack with stack towards PQ node and then destination node. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah, so, so while it works exactly as designed in MPLS, 
it requires changes in header in IPv6, which is prohibited. And there's a reason for that. It breaks PASMTU discovery because size of your packet is different now and not what you pre-signal. So any node in the past could go and drop. As we know, fragmentation is not allowed in IPv6, but de facto you break. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, so cool. Well, thanks, Jeff, for coming on and talking to us about segment routing and the history of segment routing. It's um, really cool technology. And I still say that I think the segment routing is what MPLSTE should have been in the first place. Ha! So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Jordan's down there thinking about something. Anyway, <laughs> no, it's all good. So, um, yeah, so sometime or another, we'll have you come back on and talk about eVPNs, I think, because um, I think that's another really cool technology, and you were pretty involved in the very beginning phases of that, which is really neat. So cool. So thanks, Jeff, for coming on. And uh, hey, where can we find you, Jeff, other than on the Network Collective Slack, now that you've joined us on the Slack and we can give you a hard time? <laughs> so I'm trying to share most of my knowledge and things I find interesting on LinkedIn. Oh, uh, what? LinkedIn? Yeah. <laughs> So Who uses very, that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, come on, that service, come on. <laughs> I'm not very active on Twitter, and I should be, I know, but kind of LinkedIn. No, you need a blog. That's what you need. Russ is like the person who makes people blog. Like that, that's his role in life. I mean, like obviously Russ builds networks too, but like, you know, Russ is like, you got a blog. Like, what you like, you touched a router one time, you should have a blog. <laughs> but my blog is usually reactive, so I read some stuff Russ might put or Ivan or someone I deeply respect and I react. Right. So in other words, you angry blog. Oh, yeah. Like, like, <laughs> like you're, you're out telling the rest of the world how wrong they are, which is awesome. That's perfect. Uh, you know, I stopped doing it about four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so, that's cool. Yeah. All right. And probably so, we might also talk at some point applicability of segment routing to services, how you could do service chaining with segment routing and some other cool stuff. But we can find you on the ITF list. Are you on Twitter as well? I'm on Twitter. It's just, you know, I'm there. Yeah, me too. That's fine. So that's so you're on LinkedIn as well. And Donald, we can find you at Cumulus, right? That's right. There yeah. you go. And so, like you, you, the only way you, the only way you can find Donald is by literally walking into Cumulus, like no online presence at all. No, actually not true. You can (laughs) on Twitter to to see Donald. I either have to go to the ITF or I have to actually go to Cumulus, go to the office, which is not very far for me. But that's what I have to do. (laughs) So, Jordan, you're you blog someplace, right? I'm not online at all. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I do. Uh, no, actually, I don't blog like ever. I have a, a blog that I write maybe once or twice a year, but it's there. It's jordanmartin.net. Um, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm a bit more active there. It's uh, at BC Jordo. And, and, and we can always find you at the Network Collective. That's that's where I'm putting all my time. So yeah, you can find me at Network Collective. In fact, uh, the networkcollective.com is our website. Uh, lots of great episodes around, you know, this is the history networking series as well as our community roundtable and some other some other things. Um, lots and lots of great topics. So if you haven't haven't checked that out yet, you should. Yeah, cool. All right, well, thanks. You can always find me at rule11.tech or on LinkedIn or at the Network Collective or on some Slack. I'm on like 100 Slacks now. Like my whole, my whole thing is like filled up with Slack. That's, that's the new thing, right? Like, I mean, like we went from like everyone was on Twitter and talking to now like everyone's in 50 different Slacks and you just 
track them down and whichever one you want to that day. Yeah, so, that's right. So when that's I right. need that, so when I need to go find that information, I got to search through like all the different slacks I'm a part of rather than kind of like one central place. But you know, you're on too many slacks when you start a conversation and a PM on one and you end up going to another slack to finish it. I'm pretty sure we've done that, Russ. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's happened. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's happened. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this time. Jeff, we'll bring you back on to talk about EVPNs. Thanks for talking about segment routing. It's really cool having you on. And Yeah. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks, it's a great opportunity. And I'll see you soon. All right. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks. thanks.